The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 6 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas. 10 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. in Copenhagen. Wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen, where they've closed the vaccine program completely. No vax in Denmark. Midnight in Kiev and Moscow, now in the same time zone, if not yet the same country. Half past one in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. And 2.45 a.m. in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 5 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. And a far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri for our listeners across the Pacific. We're coming up to the fifth anniversary of the Mark Stein Club, which is also the fifth anniversary, more or less, of our Clubland uh, Q&As. So do feel free to let me know or let anybody else at the club know what you like about the club what you don't like about the club. I'm uh, reassured that we are still here. I will make a general observation on what's changed in the last five years. And that's this. Uh, five years ago, every so often, we what, what do they call them on the internet? A denial of service attack. Uh, we'd occasionally get a denial of service attack and sometimes it would be successful and the website would be down. We have a very good webmaster, so it's usually back up again within minutes. But we do we did get de- denial of service attacks and <laughs> when we uh, trace them where they came from, they usually, most, the, the, the number one country that launched these things was Iran. There were people in Iran and in similar uh, countries who didn't like what we said about this and that at Stein Online and so tried to shut us down. What's changed over the last five years is that you're now more likely to have people from within the Western world wanting you shut down. That's the biggest change not just in the five years of the Mark Stein Club, but in the almost 20 years of Stein Online, that the people trying to get you shut, before the guys trying to shut you down were, you know, clever lads in Egypt uh, and Syria and Iran who didn't like what you said about the global jihad, and they wanted to shut you down. Now we spend just as much time trying to avoid being shut down by entities within the Western world. You know my feeling about this. It's what we usually call, loosely call the last photocopier in the woods theory. So 
whether or not we survive another five years with the Mark Stein Club uh, depends on having to go to more and more effort to outwit uh, entities in the Western world who want to do you down. It's the biggest change over this century, over the whatever it is, quarter century of the Internet. Um, and of course, we now have a new wrinkle to that with the all-American Ministry of Truth, because there's nothing more American than a Ministry of Truth, is there? So it was quite natural that the uh, alleged Secretary of Homeland Security, have you ever heard of a more laughably misnamed ministry than that? Uh, there's no Homeland Security. Anybody can walk into the country. Uh, and he announced his new disinformation govern governance board, and the chief of it, Nina Yankovitz, <laughs> who's quite a character. But she but just so you know where they're going on this, she has said that online mockery of Kamala Harris is a threat to national security and that platforms uh, and governments aren't doing enough. It's time to act. Our national security and democracy are at stake. So if you mock Kamala Harris, you're guilty of disinformation. They don't, they never start, you know, for, for start, she's a partisan hack. I, I don't mind people being partisan hacks. You, you need them in the kind of system America has degenerated into. But if you were seriously wanted to reassure people that this wasn't going to infringe on the First Amendment, don't wave that Constitution at me. Sorry, I didn't mean to say First Amendment. Didn't want to get into the Constitution waving this early in the show. But if you wanted to reassure people that this wasn't a threat to the Constitution, you wouldn't uh, appoint someone who's such a partisan hack that uh, she uh, peddled the Russian dossier, which is a fake, uh, all about, you know, hookers urinating uh, for President Trump's amusement. It's a complete fake, that dossier. You wouldn't have picked someone who promoted that and who then turned around and said that the Hunter Biden laptop was a Trump campaign product as opposed to being the real Hunter Biden's real laptop with real emails showing just how real is the corruption of the Biden family by the Chinese Communist Party. If you wanted to reassure someone that this, oh yes, disinformation uh, governance board, don't worry about it. It's, uh, it's not all about getting at people who are impertinent enough to disagree with the government of the United States and its approved narratives. You would you, you'd pick some boring, you know, First Amendment scholar nobody had ever heard of from somewhere or other who had had nothing to say on the partisan battles of recent years. Instead, you pick a partisan hack. Americans should be ashamed of themselves for what is happening here. And in particular, I think the American the American right, I don't. I hear a lot of pro forma pushback on this thing, but I don't actually hear anything equal to what's happening, which is that uh, uh, the accelerating decay of American institutions such as here. I mean, I'm cynical about the First Amendment because I've been in a 
whatever it is now, an 11-year battle over a 200-word blog post. Um, so I'm cynical about the value of the First Amendment because it's cost me millions. It, it, and I'm confident it'll you know, all work out in the end, but it will have cost me millions and years of my life. Uh, now we have something, that, but that's like a personal problem for me. Now we have something that's directed at everybody. And given the behavior of Cumulus and the other so-called conservative media network, uh, networks, you know, you get the feeling they're just going to adjust and uh, accommodate this. But they're serious about it. She's serious about it. Uh, mockery of Kamala Harris is going to be within the remit of the Disinformation Governance Board. Okay, let us get to your questions. And speaking of which, Drew Weber says, Hello, Mark. Now Ministry of Truth, as Biden is poised to demolish any semblance of a southern border, even some in his party are fretting. Mass immigration is not popular. Lots of wailing about democracy in peril. But has there been another issue where our ruling class has been so hell-bent to ignore the will of the people. Can't think of one. With many Republicans aligned with the Chamber of Commerce, I doubt the midterm will bring about a sea change. What recourse will the people have before it's too late, assuming it's not too late already? You've already got these complete asses from the Senate already reaching across the aisle to propose some kind of bipartisan, comprehensive immigration reform. Whenever you hear the phrase comprehensive immigration reform, it means that what's actually happening, uh, which is the security of the southern border. Now, we live in a time when the country has been on orange alert for over 20 years, you know, because of 9-11. Uh, that's why you have to take your shoes off in the airport. Degrading. It's good. It's good that, though, isn't it? Because it gets it gets a uh, a republic of free people used to thinking of themselves as cattle having to take the shoes off and shuffle through. So it's been useful for what's coming next. And what's coming next has uh, just shown up. And the uh, so on the one hand, we've had this uh, orange, code orange security state for two decades. Then we have this supposed global pandemic that is spread by, you know, people moving around from one country to another. That's how it gets out of Wuhan and all over the world. And so that means that the general population can't go to work. The general population has to be quarantined in its apartments. Uh, but the one exception to this where nothing is ever checked is the southern border. Now, you know, when you who's doing who's doing this when you actually break down the the Democrat vote, if you ask an honest question about illegal immigration, for example, overwhelming numbers of Republican voters are opposed to it. But so is a majority of Democrat voters if they're asked an, an honest question. But. It doesn't make any difference. They can't get it because, as I've said elsewhere, we're now in the post-Democrat era where uh, John O'Sullivan made this point, actually, the other when he was talking about the Hungarian election on the Mark Stein show. He said, Hungary, uh, you, you're not being told constantly by the establishment uh, that the election won't change anything. 
the idea is that the election will change uh, something. It will change to a reflection of what the people have voted for. So that's which is the purpose of an election, whether you throw out the government or you keep the government, is to ensure that the elected representatives are more or less in the, headed in the same direction as the people who vote for them. That's not really how it goes. As you go west, that whole theory falls apart until you get to somewhere like uh, the United States, where you can vote for certain things, but you're never going to get them. And that's the danger. That's the danger here. When you talk about Republicans being aligned with the Chamber of Commerce, that's a polite way of putting what's going on. You know, they're literate. The uniparty consensus is literally killing Americans through fentanyl, you know, because that's what's coming across the border. That's what it means to have an undefended southern border is you're getting a uh, all, that's where all the fentanyl's coming in, and the fentanyl's coming in to kill Americans. And then uh, that's something on which there's a bipartisan consensus. You know, Paul Ryan didn't want the wall. Mitch McConnell didn't want the wall. The time to get the wall was, was the time to get it was to do what the Hungarian and the Slovakian governments have done. Just get on and build the bloody thing. Which is what happens in most countries. You vote for a policy and then the policy is enacted. Here, you, here Americans voted for the policy and then Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell swung into action to impede the policy. What matters is what you do in your first... He should have said... He should have... I've said this before, but it so annoys me. No point trying to get all the celebrities hated him all of a sudden. They loved him all the time. The Apprentice and all that kind of thing. They were fine with it. So why if, they, if none of them want to be in your inauguration, why bother? Why don't you say we're all business? And why don't you do what I propose? You hold a bare bones inauguration, something like when Coolidge was sworn in as president by his father, by a, a, a ga uh, an oil lamp in, um, in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. That's the Republican ideal, not this crapola of an inauguration that you have in Washington with wretchedly bad poetry and, and, and melisma queens screwing up your national anthem. That's all just total rubbish. Why don't why didn't he just have that all business thing where he's just at the southern border and lays the first brick in the border wall and gets on with building it? You know, it's a dangerous. Well, I used to say it's a dangerous lesson to teach people that voting makes no difference, which is what happened. I mean, I don't know how people get so I can't get excited about the midterms because I remember all the other midterms that were supposed to stop Obamacare and all the rest of it. And I remember all the elections where you, you, the, the stars align and the Republicans win the House and the Senate and the Oval Office, and still uh, Republican voters don't get what they want. What recourse will the people have before it's too late? You have to change. This, this is why it's so important to change the facts on the ground in all the other arenas 
in all the other arenas of life. Now, there's a huge opportunity here because the movies are crap at the moment and there's two kinds of movies. There are money-losing woke movies which are made uh, for the uh, Hollywood elites to show to each other. Right? They, they, they'd, rather take, they'd rather make a movie that strikes all the right attitudes and, and lose money on it. Because on, on the other hand, they're also making Fast and Furious 37, which will be racking up a huge amount of money in all those huge multiplexes in communist China. They're the only two mo- kinds of movies that Hollywood makes now. Product for young men in the uh, far East Asian multiplexes and then these virtue signaling movies they can show on Academy Awards. So there's a huge gap in the middle where you could actually make mass entertainment for Americans. Uh, and, uh, and it's the same in television, it's the same in pop music, it's the same in all kinds of, in all kinds of things. But somebody Somebody is going to uh, have to, and that's why the, the thing about the thing that this is where this disinformation governance board gets interesting, because uh, the space that the the one space that the the left does not totally control is the back and forth of political discourse on things like the internet, on talk radio, on cable news, and a couple of other places. And so the idea of, of the disinformation governance board is that this will close the one uh, little corner of life that they don't completely control. Ali M says, hi, Mark, the latest salvo fired by the Biden administration in an attempt to curl, curtail free speech is the creation of a truly Orwellian disinformation government's board, which was announced immediately after free speech advocate Elon Musk purchased Twitter. They're not connected. I mean, I'm all for the conspiracy theories. This thing's been in the works because they already had the gal lined up to run it. The fact that it's part of DHS indicates it will have the authority to advise on matters such as whether certain information speech constitutes a national security threat as in terrorism, domestic or otherwise. There is no otherwise, Ali. Terrorism is all just domestic now, isn't it? Things certainly look bleak on the free speech front. Is there a way to disentangle from deranged Democrats' devious devices displacing democracy with despotic dystopia? I I, I can only tell you how I have managed to hang on in here. I, I, I start by looking at the places where they're out to get you. And uh, that certainly includes the United States. And so the thing to do is to limit your exposure to things like the disinformation governance board or whatever else they come up with. And, and uh, you have to, whatever you're doing, you have to root it through places where, for the moment, they're not out to get you. And so the reach, or it, it's, it's harder for them to pick up the phone and have you closed down or whatever. They're serious about this. This is really what one of the things I brought up with David Starkey yesterday, yesterday on yesterday's Mark Stein show, the Thursday Mark Stein show, is that Tocqueville's uh, 
aside about the power of the emperor, that he couldn't control all the details of social existence. I made this point in After America. I made it last night. It strikes me as the most one of the most interesting observations that uh, Alexis uh, de Tocqueville made, where he correctly observed that if the, the king in his palace couldn't really get you, unless he sent a detachment of men 200 miles away to get you, but he couldn't know what you were doing every single moment of the day. So he couldn't do what Justin Trudeau can do and just freeze your bank, command that your bank accounts be frozen. And he, and he couldn't do what the DHS is now proposing to do, which is essentially to monitor political dissent. Now, when she talks about mockery of Kamala Harris, who hasn't mocked Kamala Harris? I've done a little bit of it. I don't like to do the heels up Harris type jokes because I think it's not terribly nice to... Uh, suggest that the vice president of the United States is some kind of, uh, uh, is that kind of, is a, a woman of ill repute or whatever. So I don't do those kind of things. But on the other hand, I, I don't see why it should attract the Department of Homeland Security if you are minded to do those things. That's just part of what it means to be in any kind of public uh, position. But the fact that she has singled out that as an example of why we need a body like this is ought to be very disturbing to any Americans because it tells you these people are serious. And we know how we know the, the difference. There's a limit, even in Justin Trudeau's miserably authoritarian uh, uh, regime, there's a limit to what they can do to you. It's different in the United States because every government department has its own SWAT team. In the end, the most obscure, you know, bureau of paper shuffling has the capacity to kick your door down and open fire on you. And, and, they, and they want you to know this. That's why they uh, ha call CNN up so that CNN can come there and filmed the stormtroopers arriving at Roger Stone's house at six in the morning. There was no need for any of that. In most other countries, if Roger Stone had done whatever he was alleged to have done, uh, you uh, knock on his door at uh, 9.30 in the morning and uh, have a quiet talk with him, uh, two or three of you, and uh, you then uh, drive him downtown for a talk at the police station. But here... In America, in the end, they've got, they go the full robocop and they're anxious to put a bullet in you. And even if they don't, you know, you'll be in jail forever like the January 6th thing. It's very disturbing. And again, the right with all its, the pom-pom girls of the right talking about the Constitution. The Constitution has permitted them to kick Roger Stone's door down and drag his wife out in the, her nightgown while they're in the full robocop. You know, so the pansy right buggering on about, you know, uh, stuff that is no longer relevant to a post-constitutional republic, deeply post-constitutional. You know, it may well be that when you get this thing before some judges, they'll strike it down as the affront to the First Amendment that it obviously is. What, what we have, but right now, 
Uh, and, and, you know, that's not a certainty. You've all seen the way, you know, the people that you expended huge amounts of effort dragging across the finish line to get onto the Supreme Court, your Amy Coney Barrett's and your Brett Kavanaugh's and all the rest of it aren't quite as rock ribbed as uh, you thought they were from the Democrat attacks on them. And now, uh, so it might, but it might, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. It might well be that, you know, however many months or years down the line, uh, you'll manage to find five judges willing to say no to this. But it shouldn't have to get to that because right now that's a patently, a patent breach of the First Amendment. You, uh, you have um, the head of the new Ministry of Truth saying that mockery of the vice president is a threat to national security and democracy. Mockery of public officials is, is we're not talking about anything unusual here. Mockery of public officials is the bedrock, uh, def bedrock condition of any kind of politically free society. So we have people now who are just like talking to us as if they're already dictators. And they're confident, oddly enough, that guys like, you know, what's that guy's in a bit of trouble this week because they've leaked, you know, again, complete buffoon who shouldn't have said any of it. The, the Kevin McCarthy, that's the guy. Kevin McCarthy, if we have this landslide in November... Landslide McCarthy is going to be the new Speaker of the House. And Landslide McCarthy is on tape basically agreeing with the Democrats' framing of January the 6th. So you think he's going to be the one who's going to stand up for your First Amendment rights? Carolinen says, One of Trump's virtues is his ability to withstand even welcome the slings and arrows of an outrageous fourth estate. Elon Musk has now bought entry into the trolling fields, along with the new Office of Election Fortification. Are you expecting some First Amendment fireworks? I don't know what you mean by First Amendment fireworks. We never, you know, we. it doesn't matter. Whatever the provocation is, it's never enough to persuade, do you, as I said, do you get the feeling this is Kevin McCarthy's hill to die on? They've actually got a ministry of truth now, and they've put a partisan hack in charge of it, someone who bought into uh, the Russian disinformation and peddled it wholeheartedly, and someone who, on the other hand, said the Hunter Biden stuff is Trump campaign product. You know, it's it's the it, the fact is it's just shadow play here, because uh, this is the wh who was it the uh, Harlem Globe Trop Globe Trotters who are the other guys I don't know anything about your uh, lousy American sports but whoever the other guys were uh, this that's that's who the Republicans are here it's 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 pathetic I don't hear anything I don't hear any serious you know by serious I mean like the conversation that David Starkey and I uh, had yesterday, you know, where you you uh, acknowledge the scale of the threat. And, you know, Kate Smythe made a, a... I've had cause to think about it this week, and I think it's a brilliant observation in many ways. 
that Kate Smythe made, our, our, uh, one of our Australian club members, and just as a sort of throwaway in the comments, but I think it's actually a rather profound point where she thinks that all this, these woke distractions, you know, so, oh, they've taken uh, Uncle, Uncle Ben off uh, the rice. OK, let's, uh, what do you think about that? Oh, are we going nuts or whatever? And, and, and uh, so we all talk about Uncle Ben or Aunt Jemima for the, uh, for, the, for the full hour. We're taking your calls on Aunt Jemima, you know, and, uh, and then the day, 48 hours later, everyone's forgotten Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, something else has come along. And this is what we talk about when we're not talking about first principles and the and the real actual threats to it. Now you've seen what they did to the January 6th guys. No one really uh, with few exceptions spoke up for these guys but they've had their lives destroyed uh, because they were painted falsely as insurrectionists. Well now people who mock Kamala all those people make clever little tweets about, oh, heels up Harris. Uh, OK, OK. Uh, you think they don't know where your bank account is? You think they don't know where your address is? Even though you've got Eagle Patriot Warrior 73 as your Twitter handle, you don't think they don't know who you really are? You know, they're serious about it and they're serious about crushing. And it's not crushing any kind of meaningful dissent. And a lot of this sort of, uh, oh, today, we, have you seen the latest? Uh, have, you, have you seen now there's a buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack? Well, now they're changing it to Cracker Jill. Uh, so it's, uh, it's uh, for girls who want to play baseball. So it's now buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jill. Uh, OK, let's talk. You know, and in the meantime, you're losing your country. I don't, I don't get half this. I don't get half this stuff. Eric Dale says, hey, Mark and fellow club members, I think we uncorked Orwell too early for tales for our time. Yeah, I did actually. And oddly enough, I think I can say this now because it was a year ago. Um, but I actually think my uh, serialization of uh, 1984 was actually pretty damn good. I'll tell you something. The torture scenes were very good. They did terrible damage to my... Uh, voice because they were so realistic. So it actually took me um, a few days of resting up to uh, <laughs> to recover from that. But that actually was a pretty damn good serialization of uh, 1984. And uh, I and I certainly, if you haven't yet heard it, I certainly recommend it. Uh, Eric says I think we uncorked Orwell too early, as the Department of Homeland Security just announced the formation. Information Governments Board, the already Orwellian named Department of Homeland Security. Why do we need, by the way, when you've got open borders, why do you need a Department of Homeland Security? That, the, this, uh, I oppose the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. If you go back to what I wrote in the first days after 9-11, and I did it on Thatcherite grounds because Mrs. Thatcher always used to say that if you create a department for it, you just... You don't. You never get rid of the problem. You just manage the problem, and it becomes a self-perpetuating bureaucracy. In this case, it doesn't even meet that definition because what's happened now 
is uh, they don't really do anything. The people who pulled off uh, 9-11 basically got away with it. Uh, we made them the Taliban guys. We made them the eighth or ninth biggest military in the world they are now. They're, and they've got all the state-of-the-art of the art equipment. Basically, <laughs> all these people complaining about the cost of the stuff we're giving to Ukraine, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, what do you think we gave to the Taliban? Ukraine, the Ukrainian military, if they had what we gave the Taliban, the Ukrainian military would be occupying the Kremlin right now. You know, but, but we're never consistent on these, these things, mainly because we think we've got all the money. And in fact, we're broke. So uh, actually the cost of arming the Taliban. It's not something you can, everyone thinks, oh gosh, it's just a, put it in the budget under miscellaneous. Eh, no, it doesn't actually work, doesn't actually work like that. But we don't do anything for that. I, and again, I've written, I've been consistent on this for 20 years. So whatever it was, I, I mean, I hate to do this, as I said, in, I know people get fed up with it, as I wrote in 2012, I did all this a decade ago when I noticed that the Department of Homeland Security were raiding strip clubs in the Boston area because the strip clubs had a little side racket going selling Boston Red Sox knockoff merchandise. So instead of the proper uh, Red Sox merchandise made in China, with, the, uh, with, with, with a percentage going to Chairman Xi and his chums, there was, there was uh, you know, some guy in Azerbaijan who'd been making knockoff Chinese uh, Red Sox T-shirts. And so the Homeland Security were raiding the strippers who were selling the knockoff Red Sox merchandise. And at the same time, somewhere in Maryland or somewhere like that, they were raiding a, uh, a guy who liked to collect British sports cars on the grounds that uh, his, uh, the, whatever the duty, he'd, he'd characterize whatever it was, a Lotus Elan or a TR4 or something, uh, as a different kind of vehicle, allegedly, in order. So they, again, the guys in the full Robocop descent. So the Department of Homeland Security for years has been practicing for its new role by not doing anything about jihadists and the Islamic threat to America. And so now it's simply completing, having like warmed up on collectors of British sports cars and strippers who sell knockoff Red Sox merchandise. Uh, it's now, okay, we're now ready to fulfill our real purpose, which is getting you. Yes, you. Because you people who go to school board meetings, you're the... Re we, why is it being framed like this in the media? Why don't people push back and say, just a minute, I quoted Tocqueville. I quoted Tocqueville. Tocqueville thought that a New England town meeting was the best form of government ever devised. Right? If, you read, if anyone read him in the miserable ruling class of the United States, they'd know that. So what is a school district meeting? A school district meeting is basically the school version of a New England town meeting. So it's not, it's something that since it's, the, since the very first school district meetings, 
uh, is about citizen participation. Uh, education is not a spectator sport. It's a participation sport. And you elect from your number, not professional educators or educrats or edu-activists. You, you elect townsfolk. You elect uh, the guy who runs uh, the feed store, uh, the miller, uh, and other uh, representative townsfolk from your town to uh, manage the affairs of the local grade school. It's not meant to be a professionalized activity. So how can it be that it's being promoted, that people who go along to school board meetings and do all this stuff are, are somehow incipient terrorists? The degradation of discourse in this country would make civil war inevitable if it weren't for the disturbing fact that uh, increasingly one has to conclude that they're likely to achieve most of their goals before that even comes to that. Eric Dale says, as a constant, Eric Dale continues, I, uh, we were talking about the Homeland Security thing. I shouldn't really have interrupted Eric's missive, but he, he continues, as a constitutional fetishist, I would point out that this board is taking shape without being written into law by an act of Congress at the sole behest of the Department of Homeland Security, as well as a clear violation of the First Amendment. What are your thoughts that a majority Republican Supreme Court led by John Roberts or an allegedly imminent Republican-controlled Congress led by Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell will roll back this affront to liberty. Or maybe it's time to accept that if God wanted freedom to survive, he would not have appointed the Republican Party to defend it. Any thoughts on the tepid response in conservative media about this? I feel this should be an all-hands-on-deck once more unto the breach, dear friends, moment for liberty. Well, what do you mean by... All that is, all that is completely true. I've said about what's likely to happen at the Supreme Court. But again... To take, to take your constitutional court seriously, and I don't really, really, really believe in uh, the idea of a constitutional court as it has degenerated uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't really believe in that. In that. But if you do... As uh, you know, all these all these heavyweight conservatives do. Ooh, we have to work. We have to work hard to get uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh onto the uh, Supreme Court, and Amy Coney Barrett, so they can screw us. Up. So then we got like a big six-three thing. Uh, so then they're going. Uh, so six-three means we're gonna. They're gonna have to find two of our rock-ribbed conservative judges to screw us over. You know. It's so stupid. And only halfwits would get into this as a way of preserving liberty, this veneration of judges. But if you do venerate judges, what you're up against here is their, uh, their def decades of deference to administrative authority. That, that have been built up since, you know, basically since uh, FDR created all the alphabet soup agencies. 
So judges were then faced with the choice. Do we go along with all this? Uh, the Constitution is a bit vague on this, but the, I thought the idea was that we were self-governing people who elected uh, persons to represent us uh, to serve limited terms. And uh, as far as I can see, uh, dear old Franklin with his uh, alphabet soup agencies, he, he really wants the, these people to be a substitute government that is impervious to uh, democratic accountability. Uh, yes, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Uh, how are we going to square that with the Constitution? Oh, give me 20 minutes. I'll twist myself into a pretzel and come up with a way of justifying it. So, uh, everything Eric says is right, and yet at the same time, what's going to happen about it? They're not even pretend disinformation governance board. Oh, Oh, my God, you look a little pale this morning. Oh, well, I've just been called up before the Disinformation Governance Board. Yeah, where is the Conservative press? Where are the butch boys? Where are all the butch boys on this stuff? Hart Leonard writes, Good afternoon, Mark. I should say, by the way, we're not uh, having a 100 Years Ago show today. The 100 Years Ago show will return next week because we're one of those odd things where it's Friday, but we've already done uh, the anthology of the 100 Years Ago show. Uh, so we don't get our usual bit of perspective today, which may be why I'm just getting crankier and crankier. Good afternoon, Mark, says Hart Leonard. Had the Starship Enterprise, after being catapulted through one of those enigmatic time-altering energy plasma field entity thingies, wound up back in time, back in the American conservative blogosphere of the late April 2022, Kirk and Spock would need be forgiven for their logical analysis that Easter's saviour is now being called Elon Musk. Now, I have never tweeted, I have never Facebooked, I have never linked in to anything that couldn't put an immediate smile on my face, yet these sites seem absolutely necessary and are apparently unalterably addictive to a tremendous number of people, including conservatives. I'm in my late 60s at an age in which the mind operates in an increasingly atavistic manner, but I truly do not understand the schizophrenic attitudes of those on quote, our side to these social media sites. Time and again, and without exaggeration, I say, I've listened to multiple radio blog hosts who have spent entire segments of their programs blasting the despicable fascistic censorship of Twitter, Facebook, etc. Yet almost comically, at the end of the segment, the seemingly outraged hosts will remind listeners and don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Twitter, etc., etc., etc. Why can't we just simply walk away from the platforms that aren't friendly to us and go to those that are? I know very little about Musk, other than he seems to have made his fortune through the largesse of certain government grants. I managed to see one Tesla about every three months. To me, this Musk Twitter soap opera is much ado about very little that will make a real difference. Am I in error? What am I missing in all of this? Well, I don't disagree with any of that. Hart, I have a Twitter account, which I think from about, you know, 10 months after I started it, when I say I started it, I didn't uh, start it. Some, some, you know, deputy assistant uh, under executive vice president of Mark Stein Enterprises started it, and I was informed of it later. But about 10 months later, and for, you know, for first months, for a few months, it was quite good. We didn't really do any content there, but we got a lot of 
engagement, as they call it. And then all the engagement dried up because we were shadow banned. And we noticed just in the last couple of days, I think I showed one of these tweets on television on Thursday that, uh, that they're now desperately de-shadow banning and dismantling the shadow ban machine. But it's like too late. I've never liked, I don't like platforms. I loved, and it may never come back, but I love the great decentralized internet as it was in the first few years after 9-11. That's why I first got to know Kate McMillan uh, at Small Dead Animals and Kathy Shadle and uh, Greg Glenn Reynolds, the Insta Pundit, and all these people. And it was fun. You all linked back and forth. And if, you know, Insta Pundit linked to you, you got like uh, a bazillion hits and all the rest of it. And it wasn't about platforms. And I just have no interest in platforms. So I know that the right has now started these platforms. And I find... What was the one everyone was trying to get me onto uh, a year or two back? Was it Parler? And then it turned out that Parler, everything, every every single thing that Parler does is dependent on the goodwill of uh, Google and Apple and all the rest, Amazon. And so then they, they all ganged just when everybody, Mark Levin and all the other rubes, had moved to Parler. They said, okay, every uh, every American right-winger is over at Parler now. You can pull the plug. And bam, that was it. He's back on Twitter now, I think, Mark Levin. The secret is don't, don't create content for platforms. It isn't very difficult, that. And I, there's this other one that the big, uh, big, some big shot on the uh, conservative ink. What's that one called? Grifter. Is that right? Grifter? It's, it's the conservative rival to Twitter, Grifter. Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds good. I, I must, uh, maybe I should open up an account on Grifter because uh, I'm sure that doesn't depend on the good graces of Amazon and Google and whatnot. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, I, I don't, I never like it when everybody goes, I, I like, um, Elon Musk, just because he's yanking the left's chain at the moment. He's not a con- he's not a conservative. He he disagrees. He would disagree with ninety percent of everything, I believe in. But I enjoy watching him yank the left's chain. I don't put it higher than that, because you know, I remember all this. I, I've just. Been, been around too long. So I remember the Chick-fil-A. Oh, Chick-fil-A. Oh, they're great. I love Chick-fil-A. I want to get me some of that homophobic chicken. I, uh, tomorrow, I'd, I'd normally uh, be uh, going to uh, some fabulous restaurant, but instead I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A and show my support for that homophobic, mm-hmm, that homophobic fried chicken. It's uh, finger-licking homophobe fingers good. Uh, and then the guy says that all white people should kneel and polish the shoes of black people. Then we have this Black Rifle Coffee. <laughs> Who are they the big sponsors of? They're the big sponsors of one of these big radio shows, Black Rifle Coffee. And they're another guy's, you know, the old, the old... I mean, at some point you just have to 
take people for what they are. But all this, oh, look, I'm conservative and uh, everybody's just out to get me. And I'm so thrilled now because here's some, here's a guy who isn't. And I think that's not, I, I think a sort of a certain cool about where some of this is going uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't hurt. Uh, let's see. Oh, Christina Parrow. Uh, she sent me the letter. I got a bit heated about it, uh, about Eric Zemmour and the first round of the French election. Christina says, Dear Mark, this follows on your reaction to my question about Zemmour and the French elections two weeks ago. I want to say the thought that you need to be told what thing never crossed my mind. I was worried over your invitees shaping of the public's perceptions. GB News viewers who aren't Stein converts likely know nothing about your own views and would assume you agree with her. I think this is going back to Anne Elizabeth Mute. I think you think she's more uh, left-wing than in fact she is. Uh, Madame Mute has known... Eric Zemmour for uh, years and years and years. They've had dinner together. They, uh, you know, oh, Anne, Elizabeth, lovely to see you. And she actually, I don't want to disclose her vote or anything, but I think you're wrong in, in characterizing uh, her as as some kind of establishment uh, lefty. And um, you you say you're right in that my reaction to the first round was not entirely rational. Having watched more French TV in the last three months than ever before in my life, I ended up loathing them. I had assumed that being French, their media were saner than the Anglosphere, but no. Hearing on your GNBN slot the next day, yet another French MSN journalist with the same narrative, I was insane. Well, the, the, the thing about it is... is you know, is the narrative wrong? I, the like, what happened, what's happened over the last 20 years is that Le Pen Senior got 18%. Then his daughter, the first time round, got whatever it was, 30 something percent. Now she's at 42%. It's taken 20 years to get to a 16-point difference. And every half-decade lost makes it less and less likely that... that uh, and, and, and with every half-decade, there's more and more of the French cities are lost to uh, any, any kind of real vision in France. Now, we've just had the Swedish prime minister say that assimilation has failed... And that they're, you know, they're in a wretched situation of their own making. That's quite a big thing for a prime minister to say. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? Um, uh, Christina says, I couldn't have known that Z <laughs> uh, or Z, <laughs> Z or Z, what is in French? It's French, it's Z. <laughs> had rejected your invitation. What am I talking about? Had rejected your invitation. He seemed so keen to debate anyone that the thought didn't occur to me. No, it's nothing to do with that. It's that uh, all, all politicians trim when they're in a campaign season. 
And that, that's true of everyone who's ever contemplated standing for office anywhere. And I don't resent that. The, uh, Marine Le Pen uh, was in uh, New York uh, a few years ago and wanted to come on the show. And it it didn't happen for... Why didn't it happen? It happened, there was some sort of uh, operational reason. But she wanted to come on. She was enthusiastic. Uh, we had a lot of big back and forth. And she wanted to come on the show. Uh, when she was in New York, wanted to wanted to sit next to me, be in the same shot as me, and all the rest of it. Now I'm quite sure that Marine Le Pen wouldn't want to do that uh, in the run-up to this most recent election because she was running a very bland "Don't frighten the horses" campaign, and it didn't work. But that's what uh, candidates are encouraged to do. So I don't resent Eric Zemmour for, you know, one minute he goes, oh, America, London, it is such a fabulous book. <laughs> and then suddenly, oh, no, 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 I don't want to be going on the Mark Stein show. Um, uh, Chris, Christina goes on. Um, I have no intention of aggravating your battles with the left. I've been wondering how long before Ofcom persecutes you and whether you need police protection. And I've had, I don't like to talk about this, but I've, I've written about it. You can, uh, with the Danish Secret Service. <laughs> um, it's where that great line, I love, uh, I think Douglas Murray came up with it when we wound up because... In the end, the restaurant, the fabulous restaurants, fantastic restaurant in Copenhagen, uh, they decided they didn't want our booking because the amount of Danish Secret Service protection we required unnerved the other customers. So we had this great meal all set and then uh, we don't. So me and, uh, and uh, Douglas and the uh, nice Danish pastries, the hottie ladies from the Danish parliament, uh, plus all these secret service guys, we're all wandering through the streets aimlessly looking, and we wind up in some rather crappy bar, and, uh, uh, which I've written about, where the, uh, where the waitresses, the barmaids, slice the tops off the champagne magnums with swords, and it's actually, it's a fantastic, you couldn't, couldn't do it here because of uh, health and safety regulations, but apparently you can in Copenhagen. And, uh, and Douglas came up, he, he was just looking around, we're there. <laughs> you know, we've just had a huge success in the Danish parliament. And then we wind up in this crappy old bar uh, and uh, with these uh, fetching Nordic barmaids slicing the tops off magnums of champagne. And uh, Douglas's expression for what it felt like was a party at the end of the world. And to me, that's what most of the Western world feels like today before COVID, a party at the end of the world, a sort of desperate hedonism a desperate, lost uh, hedonism, unaware of all the other things that's going on. So that's, you know, I'm used to that. And then uh, Christina says, I was 15 in Romania when the Ceausescu regime fell. We had to watch our backs and censor ourselves for fear of security. Yeah, well, you had all the other Eastern European countries had kind of genuine revolutions, velvet revolutions, uh, as they said in Czechoslovakia at the time. And, and what you had in Ceausescu was a managed revolution where the second tier 
leadership of the regime basically hustled Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu <laughs> into the helicopter and then uh, out to the firing squad. And so you say we had to watch our backs and sense ourselves. Social trust was so damaged that Romania will never be a normal country again. I can't fathom how Westerners neither understand nor care about their accelerating loss of freedom. And you say, I blame this on the mainstream media. I don't think, I'm not sure I entirely agree with you there. I think, I think, I find Eastern Europe far more normal than the West these days. That's one of the reasons I quite like going to Hungary. And even actually Ukraine in a war zone is the, the, the suffocating the, 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 the suffocating madness all around um, is lifted slightly there. You say you can't fathom how Westerners neither understand nor care about their loss of freedom. I blame this on MSM and find it puzzling that except for Rupert Murdoch and now Big Tech, no one discusses the media's owners. Why are the Barclay brothers, they're the owners of the Telegraph, uh, not being made controversial. Why do we know so little about them and their networks? Your interview with John McGurk on murders in Ireland found a pattern of media lies. This cannot go on without the tacit or express approval of the owners who employ the editors who hire the journalists. They must be networking across borders to achieve such consensus on existential issues like replacement immigration. How else could MSM in the USA, Britain, France, Ireland, all be goose-stepping in unison? That's, a, that's an interesting question. And I would say, what I find odd is that, for example, Rupert Murdoch is a pilloried because he's felt, felt to be ideological. Uh, and, he's, and he's not, not really. He's not, not in that sense. He's ideological to the extent that he wants a business environment that will make him rich. This is, was Roger Ailes' <laughs> great joke about him. Uh, Rupert presented me with a prize uh, 10 years ago or whatever it was. And Roger Ailes uh, introduced, who's the head of Fox, introduced Rupert. This was at the New York uh, Historical Society, I think it was, which is a lovely building. And he said, people always say to me, what's Rupert really like? What's Rupert really like? And I always say to them, he really likes money. And <laughs> we all laughed. And there's a lot of truth in that. He wants a regime in place that enables him to make a lot of money. Uh, but that's, ba that's basically what it's about. And, uh, and then when you get to the other guys, like Cumulus Radio, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've talked about all this stuff before, but the, the, these are supposedly, oh, we're ideological guys because we've got uh, Rush Limbaugh on and all. No, 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 they're not. In the end, they're in the radio business. Uh, and and what they want is uh, something that takes care of their bottom line. And that's why uh, you get these situations where somebody has huge audiences and no advertising. So you wonder, if you look at it from, say, Fox's point of view, I remember when Glenn Beck was on Fox and he had incredible ratings, but he'd call Barack Obama racist so nobody would advert. There was an advertiser boycott of the show. So they had huge numbers. He was on at 5 p.m. 
and uh, they weren't making any money. And so anyway, then he left, uh, you know, for one reason or another. And he was replaced by The Five. And I remember the guy who was, I think, the first executive producer of The Five, uh, we were chatting in the corridor, uh, and he said, yeah, it feels good to be making money at five o'clock again. You know, because they had a, a powerhouse show with Glenn Beck. If you remember, he would, he, he would be, he'd be cradling the Star Spangled Banner on the floor of the studio and holding it in his arms and weeping over it because the Star Spangled Banner was dying. It was fantastic stuff. And he got huge numbers. But all the advertisers stayed away, so they didn't make any money. And eventually, so you've got to have the house train shows. If you if you organize it well enough, like, you know, you got all the advertiser boycotts with Tucker, except for the um, My Pillow guy, and then the My Pillow guy uh, gets uh, boycotted because of what he said about the election. So then you don't have the My Pillow guy for a while. You've got to arrange things so that you can use fold Tucker into the overall numbers and oomph your ad rate on all the sort of boring controlled opposition shows or whatever you want to describe them as, uh, where the advertisers feel it's safe to appear. So they're not really, they're not really ideological. On the right. Then you have people like National Review who are basically existing on people who haven't yet noticed that Bill Buckley's firing line uh, is no longer on the air. So they're basically people who loved Bill Buckley in 1968 uh, and have uh, no idea that the show's not on anymore. They just assume it's on its spring hiatus or whatever. And they're, and they're a dying number of subscribers and they're not getting any new subscribers, but they're worried because they think that if you go too much red meat, then uh, all these respectable people will leave you alone. And these are calculations that these guys make, right? And that's why they're never quite, you know, I, I've, and on the other hand, then you have people who shouldn't be ideological, like people who make Hollywood movies, and they're completely ideal. Or the fellas who run the New York Times, the, the Mexican who owns the New York Times, because that the Salzburger family ran the whole bloody thing into the ground. Uh, they would rather uh, sell fewer papers and be ideologically pure. So this idea that there's right-wing purity among right-wing media ownership, they're mostly just guys you know, trying to make a living in very difficult circumstances where if you hire someone who it goes, you know, super rah-rah and becomes a huge like lightning rod like Rush or Tucker or whoever, then you're going to get stuck, slammed with advertiser boycotts and all the rest. And then you have people who are in what should be totally non-ideological act activities uh, and like Disney, and yet, so Disney are far more ideological than Cumulus. Disney are far more ideological than Rupert Murdoch. And that's the, that's the weirdness of that situation, Christine. Just talking about, I've worked, you know, I've worked for uh, right-wing guys like Mr. Murdoch, and I've worked for left-wing guys like the owners of the Irish Times, 
and I've worked for places that are not ideological at all, like McLean's, uh, Ted Rogers, who turned out to be everything I could ever have wanted when it came to seeing off the Canadian Islamic Congress and the Human Rights Commissions. And in contrast, uh, an ideological operation such as National Review was completely useless on that front. It's very interesting. Uh, Donald Dianetti says, Mark, I'm a fan for many years, but a newish club member and a virgin question poster. No politics this time. Don writes from Rochester, New York, where I had an absolutely terrific time at, oh, what's it called, the Kodak Theatre or the Kodak Format? Absolutely huge place, beautiful place. And uh, we did the uh, Dennis Miller adorable, deplorable thing there in Rochester. And uh, having such a good time and then meeting with a lot of folks at the stage door afterwards and posing for photographs. And the only, <laughs> the only mistake <laughs> was uh, not uh, making uh, preparations for dinner afterwards, uh, which I was rather looking forward to. And uh, so I think we wound up in a drive through Wendy's where 98% of the menu items had shut down for the night. Uh, but other than that, it was a great time in Rochester. And Donald uh, Dianetti says, I particularly enjoy the song of the week and also the 100 years ago show. And I find myself oddly captivated by the vocalists in the period songs on that ladder program. The fellow that sings Wait Till You Get Them Up in the Air Boys and Love Her by radio. Love Her by radio is Billy Jones, and I think that's Billy Murray on Wait Till You Get Them Up in the Air, boys, and a handful of others. Although, actually, no, as I think about it, I think Billy Jones might actually be a pseudonym for Billy Murray. Who was this man? Was he a big star in his time? Was he possibly the first singing star of the radio era? Just curious for whatever light you can shed on him. The older I get, the more interesting the past becomes, and I have a great appreciation for your presentation. Maybe we should do a show on him. But he was, I'd say he's one of the first personality singers who's sort of accessible to our ears. Um, obviously, the very, we're talking about the great turnover. We're, we're basically in the turnover now from the pre-electric to the electric era. Um, but, but, but basically, there was a big stand and deliver thing uh, with these tenors who would roll their, their, their personality, such as it was, was that they would extravagantly roll their R's just to put it over into the horn and so it would sound on record. And Billy Murray, you notice him because he's uh, one of the, the few, like Jolson, he's a character, he's a personality on record, which people hadn't figured, quite figured out how to do yet. And that's why you notice him uh, and you don't notice a guy and some of the other fellas just seem interchangeable because the recording equipment was too primitive to pick up vocal nuances. And there's something about the tone of Billy, the larky tone of Billy Murray that is, maybe we should do a show on him. Anyway, I really thank you for that because I wasn't really expecting uh, to get a uh, to get a, a question, uh, a question like that. And it's uh, it's very kind. I'll, I like that question. I'm really thinking uh, whether in the way that Trump used to muse, whether we should just leave it at that. But I'll I'll take a, I'll take a another one. 
Uh, Gregory Lawton says, so Biden wants 33 billion to keep the Russians out of the Ukraine, but won't spend a cent trying to keep illegals out of the US. I'm, you know, the lines, uh, the lines are so, uh, it shouldn't be necessary to come up with it. That's like a professional level line. And and I'd love to hear it from some of our politicians. But what's happening at the border is a disgrace. You know, American life expectancy is falling. It's falling for various reasons. One reason is, is that many people live lives of despair. They're, all the jobs are in China. There's nothing to do here now but uh, just get face down in the fentanyl, which also comes from China. Uh, maybe um, get uh, macheted by some MS-13 guy. I don't even know why we talk about the southern border, because the southern border extends to the Taconics, halfway up the Taconic State Parkway in up, upstate New York. It's all over suburban Long Island. We've wrecked, and I don't know, how long, uh, what can you do? I'm quite open about this. No country needs mass immigration. I say that uh, openly when I'm on television and I said it on Fox and I've said it on GB News but what but but if people think that people now people have accepted that you're micro-regulated in every aspect of your life would you you know so so things that your grandfathers would have taken for granted Freedoms that your grandfathers would have taken for granted are now micro-regulated and are going to be further micro-regulated by the disinformation governance board. Yet at the same time, there are no law. These people come into your country. And I say this, I always say this, you know, uh, I'm not one of the undocumented immigrants. I'm one of the other kind. Boy, I wouldn't make that mistake again. And I, Gregory's line, that's a good line. But it doesn't mean anything. I started using the phrase undocumented Americans. And then Harry Reid used it for real on the floor of the Senate. It's that most people buy into the bollocks. Half the country buys into the rubbish that somehow, and, and for a start, it's an enumerate society. So they, oh, yes, look, yes, uh, okay, it's, you just sound like one of those mean-spirited Republicans. I don't see what's so wrong with just letting, you know, people who want to just come here and, and, and uh, live the American dream, you know, why should the American dream be just for Americans? Well, if you do what you're doing now, if you if you if basically right now the United States is letting as many people in as it has babies each year you can't assimilate that number of people no society can assimilate on those numbers you're just surrendering turf and you're going to be a if you don't think you're a big enough crap hole already uh, after a year of Biden, you know, again, this is where the politics isn't quite equal to what's going on. You, you won't die. Japan has taken the decision. It doesn't want immigration. Japan has said, well, if we die, we're going to die as Japan. 
So it will just be Japan getting older and more decrepit, but still recognizably Japanese in most respects. America has taken a decision to die as a third world crap hole. And if you're saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you right wing hater. What do you mean by that? I'm not taking any. No, but you're not doing anything about it. You're not doing anything about it. You know, right now we've got the Democrats who are full uh, who are full steam ahead on this, even though their voters don't want it. But the people who make the running in the Democrat Party, you have to ask yourself, oh, look, I'm, a, I'm like a middle-aged uh, white bloke and I was uh, thinking of running for Congress. <laughs> no, <laughs> that ship has sailed. It's also, you know, we don't have to, uh, the for formerly fashionable minorities, like, say, a, uh, a Jew or a feminist, they're also not, you know, we've moved beyond. So we've got new groups who are making all the running. Where the, where the energy is, is what's most important. And on the left, the energy is ideological. It's with the squad and AOC and, and, uh, and uh, this woman who's now going to, be in charge of the disinformation governance board. And where the energy is on the right, on the other hand, is with the donors. And the donors are all from the Chamber of Commerce class, and they also want all these cheap people coming in so they can pay them sub-minimum wage and all the rest of it. And that's, that's, that's the problem there. And so even when it's something as ridiculous as Ukraine's borders are inviolable, we can't just have Russians marching across them any time they get a yen to. Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry. Why don't all these Russians, if they really wanted to march across a border with impunity, why don't they all fly to Mexico and walk across the Rio Grande? But, you know, in the end, most Americans, most Americans... They're going to vote now, right? What's going to happen is Biden is so lousy that everyone, oh, yes, it's going to be a landslide in November. This is uh, talker. This is going to be unprecedented. It'll be bigger numbers than since 1921. Okay, and then what? That's my question. And then what? And then what? Is it going to be, you know, left wing madness when the Democrats get in and then pause and we all take our breath, uh, but we don't reverse anything. And then the pendulum swings again and left wing madness for another four years and then another pause where we all catch our breath. That's the trouble with it. Um, OK, well, thank you. Thank you for that, Gregory. That was a very good question. And thank you for that uh, question about the 100 Years Ago show. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the anthology edition last Sunday, and it will be back next uh, week. Um, we always have a little bit of music to close. And boy, I actually need it. Uh, Renata Holm was a great soprano and uh, a mainstay of the Viennese music and theatre scene for two thirds of a century. She died a few days ago at the age of 90, and that uh, announcement of her death took me back many decades to a leisurely afternoon tea at the Café Sacker uh, in Vienna, and uh, my favorite table underneath the portrait of Franz Josef, 
which the mater d would only give me if I had some A-list Ostro celeb with me. And naturally, he was fawning all over Renata home. So we whiled away the afternoon with Renata telling me about uh, Countess Maritza. That was a big uh, hit for her and various other roles on screen and stage. She did very demanding opera and delightfully frothy Silver Age operetta. She sang Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady and she wasn't above Schlager, the middle European easy listening stuff. Uh, which I listened to all the way as I drove from uh, Budapest to the Ukrainian border a few weeks back. But I'm in a sentimental mood and I thought I'd play this. Werner Krenn will take the first chorus and uh, Renata Holm uh, will arrive for the interlude. Sagen Sie doch irgendetwas. Ja, was denn? Tun Sie doch endlich Ihren Mund auf. Was, was soll ich denn sagen? Dass du mich liebst. Tanzt auch die Seele mit, 
Vienna Kren with the late Renata Holm and the Vienna Volksopern Orchestra conducted by Anton Paulik, the Merry Widow Waltz, of course. Music by Franz Lehar, German words by Victor Leon and Leo Stein, Lippen Schweigen, Flüsten Geigen, Hab mich lieb, though lips are sealed, the violins whisper, love me. Rest in peace, Renata Home. Beauty, beauty. We lack beauty in our world. We lack beauty in our art. Uh, those things are not unconnected. If you like that sort of thing, don't miss uh, Stein's Song of the Week, 5.30 p.m. London time on Sunday. Uh, that is uh, on Serenade Radio. Um, and uh, 5.30 London time is half past midday Eastern or 9.30 a.m. Uh, sort of Sunday brunch on the west coast of North America. You're in for a treat uh, with this Sunday show. We'll have the conclusion of our tale for our time, The Fixed Period, by Anthony Trollope in just a few hours, followed... Uh, later this weekend by Rick McGuinness and his Saturday movie date and a lot more all here at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.